It has been a very tough year. We're seeing the first European country taking over another country by force since Hitler entered Sudetenland over 75 years ago. We're seeing genocidal extremists sweep through Iraq and Syria, wiping away borders and murdering whole groups of people. We've seen an unarmed black teenager shot dead in the street by the police in Ferguson, Missouri. We've witnessed devastating war between Israel and Hamas. Ebola is running out of control in Africa with up to a 90% mortality rate. And the newest prediction last week is that there are going to be a million cases by next month. Iran continues to march towards a nuclear bomb as negotiations continue to drag on. In this horrifying list, it does not even address the widespread rise in anti-Semitism, the clear and terrifying effects of global warming, the worst drought in the history of our state, or hunger, or income inequality, or other domestic issues. Happy New Year. <laughs> it feels like our world is imploding. And there's something that I am noticing among us in this historical moment, which is striking. A feeling of helplessness has seemingly paralyzed us. It's not that we don't care. We've all seen the passionate voices spread across our social media landscape. And I want to be clear about that. We care. People express their deep upset or their dismay, but often they're just not sure how to convert those feelings into action. We feel helpless and confused in this sweep of events. We've not always felt helpless. Today, when we see an unarmed black boy get shot down in the street, we know that we're seeing the brutal effects of this country's history of racism. But we don't know what we should do. Why was it that a generation before now, Jews headed to the South in droves to work with blacks to overturn a brutal and unjust white power structure? While in 2014, we debate, we investigate, we tweet, rather than act. 50 years ago, two 20-something Jews, Andrew Goodman, and Michael Schwerner decided to be agents of change by registering African-Americans to vote. Or consider the American Jews that provided life-saving affidavits for Austrian teens, like my grandparents, Catherine and Herbert, to immigrate to the US after Kristallnacht. Posting our dismay on Facebook, it feels arbitrary in comparison. Those likes and status updates, they feel very distant from action. We have a history of being powerless, but never feeling helpless or hopeless. What's changed? We can only understand who we are as a people and our reaction to chaos and darkness by looking at our past and where we came from. And just like all of us can only understand who we are as individuals today by looking at how we grew up and what our family history is. We come out of a generation that just experienced the greatest trauma in all of Jewish history, the Holocaust. Now, while the Holocaust, it's an event that happened to my grandparents' generation, we cannot underestimate the way that it shaped our thinking as a Jewish people. They're not words to describe what effect this has had on our community. In the wake of that utter devastation, of that upending of our very sense of the world, and our existence within it, where everything was hollowed out and had to be rebuilt from the ashes. 
Judaism had always been a religion about asking questions. But in the face of the Holocaust, we no longer knew how to ask. The questions themselves, they were too haunting. They were too horrifying. What possible answer could there be to the question, why? And eventually, we stopped hunting for the questions and began to focus on finding the answers. Rabbi Eddie Feinstein, he developed an encompassing thesis that everything changed when continuity became our goal, our mission statement. Hitler tried to end us, but we will continue. Maintaining or increasing the numbers of Jews in the world, that became the mark of our success. At Elisa and my wedding, as soon as the dancing had stopped and the chairs which were carrying us in the air were put away, my father, he grabbed the mic. And he looked out over this wedding which was dripping in Jewish tradition and he yelled, tonight we celebrate. We celebrate this Jewish wedding. We celebrate our tradition. But tonight, what we really celebrate is that we won. We beat Hitler. How did Hitler end up at my wedding? <laughs> but this statement is really profound and it's revealing that at that moment, looking out over the crowd on his only son's wedding day, he's focused on the Holocaust and the continuity of the Jewish people. For thousands of years, the 613 commandments compiled by Maimonides was the toolbox that we use to understand the world and to guide our lives. But after the Holocaust, they just didn't seem to resonate the way they once did. They didn't offer a way to understand the Holocaust, nor provide guidance in the face of it. Rabbi Emil Fackenheim of blessed memory, he asserted the Jewish tradition, it did not anticipate the Holocaust. Therefore, in its aftermath, we needed one more law, a 614th commandment. Thou shalt not give Hitler a posthumous victory. He said, we are commanded to survive as Jews, lest the Jewish people perish. And the rabbis, the rabbis, they brought Hitler into our mitzvot. This became the all-encompassing, literal goal of our community, continuity. The surveys coming out of federations were focused on measuring causal variables impacting continuity. What were intermarriage rates, and how did that correlate with the next generation's Jewishness? What were the keys to maintaining Judaism? Was it religious school? Was it Jewish day school? Maybe it was Jewish summer camp. Now, Jewish summer camp, it seemed to work pretty well. So we brought that music into the synagogue, hoping that that would be the glue for Jewishness to stick. Now others, they thought the key to Jewish survival was trips to Israel. American Jews have spent over $700 million on birthright trips to Israel. For over 400,000 18 to 26 year olds trying to achieve continuity. And I get it. We were reeling from the most horrific moment in our entire history. And we needed to find a way to, if not to redeem it, at least to act against it. So instead of fading away, we put our resources into the continuation of our people. This was the answer we thought we had found. And the group effort that has been made over the last 70 years, it's been nothing less than awe-inspiring. In looking for the answer to navigating troubling, uncertain times, we made continuity our primary focus. 
But in the process, we neglected what Judaism is really about. Continuity is vital, because without it, we do not exist. But continuity is not the core of Jewish tradition. Fackenheim was not prescribing a simple instructive when he asserted, thou shalt survive as the 614th commandment. Later in his life, he wrote, we must do more than just survive. It means we're under a sacred obligation not to submit to cynicism or abdicate responsibility for the world. It means being commanded not to despair, but to seek justice and righteousness. Continuity is not enough. This answer is not enough. The reason that we are feeling paralyzed while the world is convulsing around us is because on one hand, we want to get up and to repair the damage. But on the other hand, we've forgotten how to go about doing this. For decades, we've been raised on continuity, not Judaism. Continuity is just existing. Judaism is about wrestling, engaging, and causing change. Continuity is insular. Engagement is external. Answers shut down exploration. They command action without contemplation. Judaism's primary focus in understanding and confronting traumas as catastrophic as the Holocaust or ISIS lining up Muslims and Christians in trenches and shooting them in the head or the melting of the ice caps due to human activity, it's not about the answers. Because here's the secret. Questions require us to constantly learn how to best affect change. Judaism is not a religion of answers. Judaism is a religion of questions. Questions that prompt actions by causing us to wrestle and engage with the world as it roils and churns around us. Jews must constantly explore the questions that prompt actions to make the world a better place. There was a two-year-old, a Jewish two-year-old, and he went to go see a psychiatrist for an evaluation. Only a Jewish two-year-old. And the psychiatrist, he asked the, the two-year-old, he held up an apple and said, what is this? The two-year-old said, it's, it's an apple. Then he picked up a banana and said, what is this? The two-year-old said, it's a banana. Then he held up a penny and said, what is this? And the two-year-old said, tzedakah. As Jews, we seek to understand how to take the resources available to each of us, no matter how modest, even if they're as small as that little penny, and to use them to improve the situation we find ourselves in at any moment in time. As Jews, we are called to be agents of change. Judaism tells us that even within the chaos of the world and our inability to control everything around us, we still have agency. Even when we feel overwhelmed by what we can't control, we must still find a way to act. As Jews, we are obligated to wrestle with what is broken, engage in possible actions, and to enact change, no matter how small, to redeem a portion of our imperfect world. And while this goal, it begins with personal redemption, it is world redemption each of us must seek as Jews. But how? Jews have a term for the period when the world was redeemed. In our parlance, it is called messianic times. And the harbinger of this messianic era is the prophet Elijah. 
But why Elijah? We have a lot of prophets. Why is he the one who is appointed to signal the approaching of the messianic age? In the book of Kings, we read that Elijah was a prophet who made it his mission to redeem the world. Elijah, he travels around trying to prove to other false prophets what the truth is until he gets to the point of feeling totally helpless because the task is seemingly insurmountable. It's not that Elijah becomes apathetic, no. He becomes paralyzed because he knows what he needs to do, but he doesn't know how to do it, and he gives up, and he gives in to his feelings of helplessness and exhaustion. Sound familiar? He feels helpless until a still and a quiet voice comes and asks him in the quiet of the desert, Malacha po Eliyahu, why are you here, Elijah? When Elijah is confronted with this question, he's finally able to articulate to himself what his purpose is. That he's here in the world to act with everything that he has inside of him. It's only at that point that God stops asking him questions and tells him to return to his path. Now we all know that Elijah is central to the Passover Seder. But crucially, we only invoke his coming after we've spent a night of asking questions about what it meant to be a slave and how we got to freedom and how we, we, not Moses, but we bring about a world where there is no slavery or oppression or shootings in Ferguson or genocidal actions in Iraq or destruction of the Earth's atmosphere. It's only when we are challenged by those questions that we say that Elijah will come and the world will be redeemed. At Passover, we are training ourselves to ask tough questions so that we understand that we are the ones that have the ability to bring about messianic times. The Messiah is never some singular magical figure from above. No. The Messiah has always been us. All of us. Together. If we engage in the world and work to repair it. There once was a rabbi named Baki who was widely admired for his wisdom. One of his students, Shlomo, he became jealous of Baki. And Shlomo, he became obsessed with this idea that he would make a fool of Baki by asking him a trick question that he couldn't answer. Now, Shlomo, he spent days thinking up this question. And then one morning he came to class carrying something right behind his back. Rabbi Baki, he said. I have a question for you. I'm holding a dove in my hands. Tell me, is it alive or is it dead? Now Shlomo's pan at this point was to release the live bird if Baki said dead. But if Baki said alive, he was going to crush the bird in his hand and kill it. Now Baki, he gazed silently at Shlomo for a few moments. And then he replied gently, Shlomo, you're holding a life in your hands. Choose well what you do with it. The answer to your question is in your hands. It's not in mine. Like Shlomo, each of us holds an incredible amount of potential in our hands. The potential to make life or death with our hands. It's up to us to choose what we do with our agency. So that 
is the key lesson of our tradition. We can destroy the burden in our hand or we can give it life. We are living in a time and in a world surrounded by numerous challenges. And each of us must ask ourselves, what can I do to move the world closer to its redeemed state? We must ask ourselves, what are we each doing with the gifts that we have been given? Generations of Jews have come before us, and they were sometimes powerless, but they were never helpless. In the year 5775, we have more social and political standing, more influence and more knowledge than any previous generation. This is a privilege. It's a privilege and it's a responsibility that we have agency. Now some will say that these feelings of helplessness that we are experiencing are rooted in just being overwhelmed because we see so much falling apart around us. We don't know where to start or how to start or even if we should start. But we're not the first ones to feel this way. In the year 200, Rabbi Tarfon said, it's not your job to complete the work. But neither are you allowed to desist from it. Our generation will be remembered by what we do with our agency. And surely, we can do better. For thousands of years, the glue of our continuity, it was not the 614th commandment. The thing that kept our families together, our communities together, the Jewish people continuing against all odds was that we knew where we were trying to get to. The goal wasn't just to exist, to continue existing, but to use our existence to work towards repairing not just ourselves, but the world. We knew a broken society when we saw it. And as Jews, we would not rest because we had a job to do. Each generation has approached their challenges with the same enduring questions of how do I take the world from how it is to how it ought to be. Each generation and each individual has brought a different skill set to this millennia-old mission of world redemption. And it's only been when we've held on to our deepest and our most important question that we've been able to turn outward and to embrace the fact that in chaos, we still have agency. It's that question that each of us must ask ourselves in the deepest recesses of our souls over these next 10 days. A question that makes us throw off the yoke of helplessness and paralysis and run from the silence of the desert back into the world to wrestle and engage and cause change. And the question for us is not the one posed to Elijah, why are you here? No. The question facing our generation, facing each of us today, is what are you doing here? 